if you consider what the most important part of business is, is it the product, is it the marketplace or the people? I'd make them aware of the people. All three things are essential, but I think people make the success. Hey friends, welcome to another episode of The Empire Show. This is an inside look, and today we have a very special guest, Mr. Rob Hewitt, founder and CEO of i2 Group. And uh, he's got a media company and many other things that we're gonna be talking about where entrepreneurship are concerned. Rob, welcome to the show, my friend. Thank you very much for having us, Pedro. Yes, sir. So, uh, Rob, you just flew out of uh, the UK what, a couple days ago? Yeah, I've just come from Vegas. I okay. uh, got to Vegas at the end of last week, so had the pleasure of being in Vegas for the weekend, which is always good. Gotcha, and for those of you watching and listening to this right now, um, we are hot smack in the middle of coronavirus yeah. epidemic. And I'm curious, as someone who traveled internationally just a week ago, how were travels different? I just think there's a lot of panic out there. You know, there's a lot of miseducation and there's, there's a lot of worry from people, which, are, you know, is genuine. Sure. But. Uh, you know, I, I think if, you, if you're cautious and you follow the guidelines and you, you follow the recommendations from the travel companies and stuff, you know, it's, it's got to be done. You know, we, we talk about sacrificing businesses and the things you have to do to succeed. Sure. Well, maybe things like this on a calculated basis is, is one of those things. Sure, this is one of them, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, some, I, we see many people, in fact, next week, uh, two weeks from now, I had a speaking engagement that I was supposed to speak at. In San Francisco, they canceled it for fear of the coronavirus. Yet, when you look at what the entrepreneur has to do, uh, not necessarily has to, no one made you get on that plane during corona ec epidemic season, but you are a risk taker. You are a person who's willing to take a calculated risk. Sure. And which is probably what made you an entrepreneur, amongst many other things that we'll talk about. And uh, you ended up here. So let's talk about your first, let's set the scene. What is your business? Because you do have a Phenomenal magazine called Train Magazine um, that is really delivered and distributed in a very unique way. This is just one of many kind of avenues of marketing that you do. Why don't yeah. you tell, start us here and then kind of dive deep into your companies and what you do. So Train Magazine is a, it's a health and fitness magazine which caters for both male and female audiences. So we go out in bodybuilding.com orders in the UK and the US and we work with sporter.com in the Middle East. It's a very unique direct mail distribution situation that happens. But what's also unique about it is, is that the, the book's produced on a flip basis. Mm -hmm. So that's very much to do with the logistics of the, the product itself in the orders where we get to cater for both male and female audiences, give them their own specific covers, but essentially have one single thing that goes in the order. Interesting. Now, Rob, I, first of all, I love the way you did that. I mean, this is very a male-centric cover. Yeah. And you flip it over. It's a very female-centric cover, and yes. of course, if you flip it over and you read it from this side, it's very female-oriented, women-oriented content. Yeah, it was, it was just a creative way of being able to cater for both marketplaces. Sure, because we don't know who's buying what on bodybuilding.com. Well, you don't, and obviously the, the audience has grown significantly since this magazine started. So when it first launched, it was literally just trained, and it was catering very much to male demographics is, is, is the foremost. Mm -hmm. There was female content in there. And what we found also is that women and men still obviously digest the same and similar types of content. But as the female audience began to grow year after year, and I think even now the audience is 
was getting close to 50-50. Sure. Uh, obviously, the, the, the flip book was a creative way of being able to kill Gotcha. That. So actually, that takes me to a really good, uh, good skill that every entrepreneur needs, which is the pivot. Yes. The ability to pivot. So the magazine started off only catered really to men, or at least a, a single gender, which you know, women can obviously read and gain a lot out of that as well, sure. et cetera. But as the market changed in bodybuilding.com, especially because this is a ride-along that goes with every product that gets shipped, yeah. how far into publishing this did you decide that we're going to make it a flip book? Well, it was when the demographics and the data from the demographics actually showed itself as well. So that pivot that you talk about was really a, a planned evolution uh, that was fueled by information. So research, uh, a diagnosis really, which is a, a fundamental part of marketing, which I think is has missed a great deal today. Mm -hmm. Sure is, sure is. So tell us more about your other brands and companies. So we operate as a, as a group of companies and the, the company originally started with a, an overseas property magazine. Uh, that was the brainchild of my business partner at the time whose family invested a great deal into properties overseas and that marketplace was booming. Uh, properties like hotels, homes, buildings, commercial? It's, it's, it's homes, okay. luxury though. It was very much high-end sure. part of the marketplace. So our, our clients incorporated Hamptons, Knight Frank, FPD Savills. We were advertising and, and, and doing editorial and content on multi-million pound houses on the, the south coast of France, south coast of Spain, uh, Dubai, parts of the US as, as, as second homes and investments for gotcha. wealthy individuals that were looking for that type of investment. Uh, but that marketplace changed significantly when obviously the, the crash came and uh, you know it became less of a focus of the business. Fortunately at the time, I'd launched a product called Fighters Only which was the world's first mixed martial arts magazine, which was my brainchild sure. and part of my love and passion and the thing that I was involved in at the time. I'd seen MMA very much evolve from being an underground sport into a mainstream sport. I was actually the sparring partner of the first UK fighter to fight in the UFC. So I'd been involved, not necessarily from the very earliest days, from a very early day. Mm -hmm. And I had a media company, we were producing magazines and I loved the sport and I saw how big it could get and was going to get and so I invested in that marketplaces and launched Fighters Only. And what year was that when you kind of saw that MMA, I guess shooting star starting to shoot off? It was 2003, 2004. This is early on. Yeah, the, the, the funny story is, and it's, it's, it's known to everybody now, is that uh, when we first launched the magazine, it wasn't called Fighters Only, it was actually called Ultimate Fighter Magazine. Uh, I contacted the UFC, who was obviously not in the same position and status as what it is today. Right, right, right. You know, the, the story's very, very aware now that at the time, uh, the UFC had significant investments, which were in the red. Mm -hmm. uh, there was even discussions from, obviously, Dana and the Fatita brothers about trying to find an acquirer for the company, uh, to which they couldn't do. So what I was told is that, you know, Lorenzo went to bed one night, woke up the next day, decided that he was going to go again to commit to this and invest another large amount of money into a concept called The Ultimate Fighter, the, the TV show, the TV which show. ultimately sparked the, the huge growth and success yeah. of the UFC. And at the time I'd launched this magazine, I'd reached out to the UFC to say I'm launching the world's first MMA magazine. And I got a very nice letter back from company lawyers asking us if I would consider changing the name. I see, because uh, they had already committed to that name. The TV show was, was, was about to launch. Yeah. People weren't aware of it yet, hence the reason why I wasn't sure. aware of it when we had that title. Right. 
But as soon as I was aware of it, we, we changed it instantly. Yeah. You know? One of the things that I've always wanted to do is, is be somewhat of a leader, not a follower, not just something jumping on the back of anybody else's success mm -hmm. or anything else. I've, I've always wanted to try and lead that my, myself. So Plays their own path. Yeah, and I, I, I didn't want to conflict in, in any way whatsoever because I believed in the UFC and I believed how big it could be and sure. hoped that that would start a, a strong relationship between us, which ultimately it did. Yeah, and we'll get to that in a moment because you've got something really awesome that you do there. Um, but let's talk about that home, the, the home magazine. You, as that started to dwindle down, I'm guessing that no longer exists. No. So yet another pivot. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, look at how many times, guys and gals, listening and watching this, an entrepreneur must pivot as the economy changes, technology changes, the market space changes. And already within our first eight and a half minutes, we've yeah. talked about three pivots that you've made. Definitely. Yeah. That's, Definitely. that's fascinating. So. Let's talk about that relationship with you and the UFC and what that consists of. Well, it, it's with us in, in, in mixed martial arts yeah, and in industry. general. Yeah. You know, we, we launched the world's first MMA magazine. We, we launched a website at the time. So this was back in 2004. We've actually had websites since 2003 when the company first started. Mm. But back then, it was very hard to understand how they would make money, where the benefit was from them, other than you had a presence online. Yeah. Uh, we evolved, obviously, the, the, the Fighters Only magazine in the UK into having numerous international editions. So we had a, a German version of the magazine, a Mexican magazine, a uh, South African magazine, and we wholly owned the, the US version, which we launched in 2007. So I've had a facility and a, a offices and business in the US since 2007, which was sparked by the launch of the US edition of Fighters Only. Yeah. Now, let's talk about that for a moment. I mean, here's an entrepreneur who's UK-based. Yes. And when most British companies try and come and start a business in the U.S., yes. as you and I talked about in the green room, yeah. uh, they typically don't fare so well. Well, obviously, the U.S. is one of the biggest markets in the world, and it's obviously highly attractive and alluring to people who think that they can come here and the riches will be made and all the success will be attained. Sure. But obviously, when you're, when you're dealing with a, a foreign country, different tax legislations, different cultures to a certain extent, sure. even though it's, it's very closely aligned, there, there is a different culture to the business over here. Uh, and when you invest in significantly into such a big marketplace as well, obviously you have to have the ability to, to see a return on that investment and, and, and generate the revenue that you need to be able to survive. And I think traditionally with certain businesses from the UK, it's been known as the, the graveyard of certain British business because the allure of the potential sure. is, is, is basically outweighed by the risks of the, yeah. the management of it. So did you go into the U.S. knowing that fact that, that, you know, previously most British companies coming into the U.S. end up in a boneyard? Did you go knowing that or did you later find out? No, no, I, I, I went in knowing it. But like, so you assumed the risk? Yeah. But as we mentioned earlier, it's about risk management and it's, sure. it's about mitigating that risk. We had the world's only magazine for MMA and back then magazines were a very different business model to what they are now. Uh, so, you know, it was, it was calculated and it was, it was strategic. And uh, we were also in various different other countries around the world. And to be honest, a, a lot of the advertisers from the US were looking for international distribution as well. So we already had a client base with whom we had relationships with and we wanted to expand. And so it was a strategic move for sure. Brilliant, brilliant. And obviously it turned out well, and that led to what effectively is the Oscars of the MMA world. 
So yeah, we, I, I had a five-year business plan. And you know, I always believed that the, the Fighters Only brand was indeed a brand, and I wanted to try and develop that brand. And so the magazine was a starting point. It, it gave us the authority, it gave us the, the presence to, to, from which to sort of have ancillary offsets from the brand. Sure. So we had a, a clothing partnership with Tap Out, who at the time were the mega million colossal mm -hmm. MMA brand that was out there. And our brand had sufficient authority to make Tap Out want to work with us. And we, we produced a co-branded range of clothing, which was successful for us at the time before the Tap Out brand got sold to a, another company. And then that ended. Uh, we had international versions of the magazine. We had a, a, a version and uh, website and, and everything else. but the. The long-term business plan incorporated an idea I had years ago to, to launch an award show. Because I always thought, well, soccer has its own awards, tennis has its own awards, you know, other mainstream sports has sure. its own award show. And notwithstanding the fact that I love the sport, I, I appreciate and respect the fighters and everybody else who's a part and parcel of it. You know, the ceremony it, it caters for everybody from, from the ring girls to the cup men to the referees to the the industry people, you know, it, it was basically to celebrate the sport, which I felt deserved celebration. Sure. When you first put on the first one. Yes. W w were there any, I don't want to lead the witness, was there any trepidation by you or were there any others, was there anyone in your circle maybe saying, uh, listen, Rob, this, is, this might be the dumbest idea you, that you've yeah. had? You've had some great ideas, Rob, but this might not be one of them. Was there any of that? Oh, yeah, without a shadow of a doubt. Because it sounds, especially for back then, 2008, yeah. right? 2008, the economy had crashed here everywhere. Um, you, you really haven't, we haven't heard of that. While we saw it in other sports, we hadn't heard of that. Yeah. What did you do with that information when people are giving you doubt, when people are telling you this may not work, that now you, you're really, you're, you've crossed the line? I think I've committed to everything that I've committed to because I believed in it wholeheartedly. I believed in the sport. I believed in the potential of the sport. I believed in the people that were within it. And I also believed in my abilities and the people that I was working with. Uh, one thing I never pretend to do or, or try to be is somebody that I'm not. And I've never held live events in Las Vegas before, so I, I found the right partners to be able to help us there. Mm. I have a, an amazing board of directors uh, my two business partners have been very, very successful in their own media careers. Uh, John Josephs, who op operates as my company chairman, uh, was is an accountant. He was a partner in a in a in an accountancy for a major accountancy firm in the in the area of the UK where we live. Uh, he was asked by uh, a group of entrepreneurs to acquire, I think it was the second or the third commercial radio license ever in the wow. UK. Uh, John was actually took on board as the chief executive of that company, together with my, my other business partner, Morris, who was the sale, group sales and marketing director. And together with their colleagues, built the Metro Radio Group into one of, if not the biggest radio station of its time. Mm. Uh, it was sold to EMAP, which is now owned by Bauer in, I think it was 1984. And they then went on to acquire radio licenses all around the world, which they eventually sold to Rupert Murdoch, and Kelvin McKenzie at the time. So, you know, I, I have not only the most genuine, most ethical people you could ever meet who deeply care for me and I care for them, but I have high-level people with high-level business backgrounds who's always been there to advise us. And 
one of the big things we have as a, as a board is that we should never ever agree on anything and if we do we've got it wrong <laughs> oh really yeah explain that philosophy so as a board if we agree unanimously on something that yeah. we've got it wrong explain the mindset behind because that. The, the, there's always got to be an area of cynicism there's always got to be an area of debate obviously you've got to assess the risks and you've got to assess the challenges because if you go into something blindly thinking it's just going to work and succeed there's a chance that it might not you yeah. know you, you've got to have we believe uh, different opinions uh, conjecture uh, disagreements you know, we, we, we quite often have disagreements which are never uh, eventualized in fallout or, or problems between our relationships, more so in the knowledge that we know that we're, we're doing our job as, as directors to, sure. to debate as thoroughly as possible the, the potential outcomes of an idea. Sure, because ultimately your job as leaders is to look under every rock yeah. and see what potential problems might happen as a byproduct of taking this step. Yeah, and you know, for someone like myself who's very ambitious and always has been and is, is somewhat gun-ho and hardy and believes I can do everything and, and, and achieve everything and all of those types of things, yeah. you have to have people behind you which will analyse that and, and, and maybe sometimes pull the reins a little bit. But the award show uh, was something we all agreed on and, and committed but we've debated over the years as to, you know, not, not so much a majority, well, there is a majority for it. But there was always somebody who had to be, you know, reserved and, and somewhat cynical. Mm. But uh, one thing I can tell you is that that cynicism no longer exists. Okay. Because the award show is, is, is very successful. Sure. It's in its 12th year this year. Yeah. Uh, we've always aimed to make it bigger and better every year, which we have plans to be able to do that. Uh, it's the only one of its sort in, in, in the sport. And it's appreciated by everybody that attends it. It's appreciated by the industry as a whole. Uh, and it's developed into something which quite rightly sits in the history of this sport and has prominence. So I'm very, very proud of that. Wow, that's fantastic. Congratulations to you for being such a forward oh, thinker you. on that. So I have, to, I have to have an education moment here for our audience. We heard this from actually two people, Tom Bilyeu, uh, co-founder of Quest Nutrition and also Ed Milet about confidence or belief in self. And I said, I asked you, I said, the economy had crashed in 2008. Uh, clearly you had some success under your belt and you knew the combat sports were taking off, but all of a sudden you're launching this award show for the industry. There were doubters, they were, there were naysayers, there were probably people who thought you had lost your marbles. I said, why did you take that step anyway? And you said two very important things that we heard echoed from Tom Bilyeu and Ed Milet, which is confidence or belief. You said, I believe in myself, and you said, I believe in the people that I work with. And I believed in the sport and the people within the sport sure. as well. Sure, that's yeah. huge. Belief in self or confidence is, I, I believe, the force multiplier of success, single-handedly the force multiplier. You know, sure there's action, there's positive self-talk, there's all of that, but confidence, belief in self, is the force multiplier, I believe of success in, in entrepreneurship, probably in anything, in any sport, that I will win or I will get off the field on a stretcher yeah. with that mindset. Well, it, it, it is the mindset and uh, there's numerous different books out there and there's, there's, there's numerous different you know, theories about stuff and there's one which springs to mind automatically, it's called Black Box Thinking by mm -hmm. Matthew Syed. Uh, and he talks about you know, the success 
which has been achieved by, and you mentioned sports people specifically because of the mindset that they'll get themselves in and, and positivity is something which resonates completely. And we've all heard about believe, achieve and all that type of thing, but th th there's a lot of merit in that. Yeah, and the science backs that up. The yeah. science does back that up. And the other thing that really caught my interest in something we talk about here, there's three R's that we talk about, resourcefulness, being resilient, and being relentless mm -hmm. at any task you take on. And that's exactly what you did. You said, look, I'd never launched an event here in the States. I wasn't about to take that task on myself. You yeah. chose to get resourceful and you and your partners hired an organization that has done this before. Well, we actually got into partnership with an, an individual okay. who had done that before as well. And uh, that partnership and relationship's been developed over the last 12 years now. Sure. And, uh, you know, the, the trust and to be able to do that's another key aspect as well, you know, so. Yeah. It's just onwards and upwards with that, really. Good for you. That, that ability to be resourceful, to look for a partner when you may not have one or may you, you don't have the skill or the knowledge on how to run an event out here, to look for someone, that resource. So many people stop when they lack the resources. The resource could be time, money, uh, education, knowledge, technology, people. Yeah. Um, but to be resourceful is a core trait of that entrepreneur, and I see that so much in you. Oh, thank you. Um, so let's let's kind of keep talking about partnerships for a moment. Um, you, have, you have two business partners. Yes. Right now, I imagine all your business partnerships have worked out well and dandy, and everything's fine. No, not always. No. Okay. <laughs> not always. <laughs> and obviously, guys and gals, we're leading the witness here because you all know that I'm anti-partners unless you have a unicorn partner, and I'm sure you've got a story to share here. Well, when I first start the bit, so just to give a little bit of insight, you know. I'm actually a, a civil engineer. I, I studied and worked in civil engineering. I started off in architecture when I first left school and then uh, didn't like being restricted to the office and wanted to be outside. So I, I bridged in my qualifications and skill set in, into civil engineering. Yeah. And you were pretty young when you became a, an engineer. Yeah, so uh, in, in the UK we have A-levels. Uh, I had an opportunity to join an architect's practice to be able to learn at, uh, experience in a, in a role in an industry which I greatly wanted to work in. My father was in the construction industry. My father's my hero. I always wanted to follow in his footsteps. So, you know, that was something which I always wanted to get into. And then an opportunity came around mm. and I grabbed that opportunity and I worked hard and I studied and I did all the things that you had to do. But there was a, a transition point where I, I, I bridged into civil engineering, which I loved. I mean, which, which boy or young man doesn't like, you know, messing about in the mud and messing about with big machines and sure. you know, being in that sort of manly environment, which, you know, the crack, the humor, the, the camaraderie, and also the confrontation yeah. was just something I, I loved and thrived. Okay. Uh, Let's talk about that for a moment because there was confrontation. I mean, you were a young civil engineer, what, 19, 20 years old? Yeah, well, yeah, Even so younger? 18, 19, 20, 18, yeah, 19. and then obviously progressing through management in, in an early age yeah. as well, yeah. And on those construction sites, as we were talking about in the green room, <laughs> I mean, you're dealing with men in their 30s and 40s, and sure. there was some confrontation. Oh, yeah. Did that well, help you kind of, uh, I don't know, grow up quicker, kind of build your confidence faster? What, what happened in those confrontations? Uh, well, mainly it was, it was either nose to nose or sort of, you know, uh -huh. threats or various other different things that happened, which I wasn't opposed to. In fact, I, I quite enjoyed to a certain extent, okay. you know. Because you had a combat uh, sports background, boxing. Well, I, I trained in boxing and then obviously I trained mixed martial arts in, in my late teens, early 20s and stuff. But it was never about, you know, wanting to have a fight. It was, it was like you say, it was that ability to 
to basically not take any rubbish from anybody, especially if someone was trying to impose themselves mm -hmm. physically on us. Uh, obviously, there's, there's lines of seniority or management or so on and so forth. And I had a job to do. And as a result, you know, I wasn't going to be bullied in that manner to, to, sure. to do a decision anywhere else. But like I say, that's what made it part of the fun, really. But I think my biggest challenge from moving from an environment where you were dealing with men in a very manly environment was moving from construction industry into media where you're dealing with a very different staff skill set from creatives from you know potentially women in the office which you know there wasn't many women at that time working on construction sites and and not having to break up a word with a swear word in the minute, middle of it to communicate sure. to somebody on that level yeah. to being a little bit more mild-mannered, less tempered, and, and, and everything else. So yeah, that, that was a big challenge moving huh. from that to the other. Gotcha. Fascinating move. And, and, and by the way, <laughs> I love your story. Tell us, you were, you were getting an appraisal, which in our, here in the States, we call it, you were, you were getting a review, an employee review, um, and there was a shift, something happened that you said, I don't think I want to be an employee anymore. I might need to start my own venture. Tell us how that went. I, well, <clears throat> So I, I, I loved the job that I did. I loved the environment that I was in and everything else, but I, I've always had this fire to try and develop myself and succeed. And when I worked in construction, I wanted to be the youngest agent, the youngest senior agent, the youngest project manager, and, and really fast track my way through my career. And I, I think that the naivety that I had back then was, if I took on board all the challenges which nobody else really wanted to do, if I took on board all the hardest jobs, if I took on all the complications, and if I worked harder or spent more time at work to try and develop, that that would have been seen, accepted, and I would have achieved that. But in essence, that was very naive because the success and the development actually came from the financial benefit that you actually brought back to that company as opposed to your, to your effort. So in, in some respects, it might have hindered us a little bit more than anything else. Sure. Don't get us wrong, I, I did well and I had success. And for, for my age, I was, in a, I was in a very good position. But I went for a, an appraisal, having completed a highly difficult job, making some money on it, you know, d doing lots of things which other people possibly didn't want to do, sacrifices made and everything else, to try and win that next level only to be told that I was too young for that next level, that I needed more experience, but here's a nice pay rise, here's a, a brand new BMW company car, here's all these lovely gifts and, and rewards for working so hard, but it didn't quench that fire. So I took a holiday, something I never used to do. You know, I, I would forsake holidays thinking that was the right thing to do, to work harder, to actually get on, again, naive. Uh, and whilst I was away, I decided that I was going to try and find something of my own when I returned back to the UK. And did you think that it would be easy to start your own venture? And I didn't think it was easy, but I was just, I, I was completely appealed by the ability to be my own boss, sure. uh, the ability to try and, you know, put my name and, and my stamp on something which was mine. Yeah. Uh, to basically try and get that better life, earn that more money, to be able to provide a, a better life for everybody else. Uh, and that really, really inspired me. Sure. What, how do I, how do I, what was your self-talk in that first, let's say six or 12 months as an entrepreneur? Uh, I can tell you for me, the, the self-talk was like, I knew I was unemployable, that having a job 
a career working for someone else wasn't for me. I, I, I knew that. But the self-talk in that first six to 12 months was, holy crap, what did I get myself into? Like, I'm making decisions that I don't know if I'm qualified or capable. Sure. Uh, did you have any of that? Maybe I just didn't have the confidence that I needed. No, no, I, I, I'm sure I did. Uh, as I mentioned before, I was very gung-ho. Uh, and I, I, would, I, would, I, would, I would do exceptional things to, to try and succeed. I, I, I would never want to fail. I would, I would, also, I would always do whatever it took to to try and achieve the end results. But yeah, there was numerous times when you thought, you know, hang on, what, what do I do here? Or who can I speak to here? Or I didn't have the support network that I do have now with my business partners and the board of directors sure. that I had. Uh, quite the opposite, in fact. You know, I, I started the business with a couple of people who I had friendships and relationships with. And, uh, you know, I always remained uh, loyal and honorable and ethical to them. Uh, and notwithstanding the breakdown of one relationship because they probably got involved in the business for, for different reasons that I did. And yeah. when it got tough and you had to make those sacrifices and you had to put those hours in, it didn't meet with the original idea they had that being their own boss was going to be you know, easier and earn more money and everything else. You sure. know, there was a real realistic side which they didn't take on the board and that, that went away. But I'll never forget one day of leaving the accountant's office in the very earliest days. Uh, being told that, you know, my then partners had no more money to put into the business. Uh, it was too stressful for them uh, and just basically walked away from it. Mm. Wow. So that said, I mean, let's go uh, looking back now. You're in your mid-40s. Yeah. Looking back 20 years. Yes. There's a young Rob standing in front of you. Yeah. Mid-20s. What, if you were to see him just one time, what business advice would you tell him or what piece of advice in general would you give, not just business, to uh, maybe do better in the next 20 years? Do better. Either do better or watch out for, or here's what I suggest. What, what is a piece of advice or two that you would give young Rob if you can go back knowing what you know now? I would probably say uh, that if you consider what the most important parts of business is, is it the product, is it the marketplace or the people? I'd make them aware of the people. I think, I think all three things are essential, but I think people make the success, whether it's your partners, whether it's your support network, whether it's building the best team around you that can help support you. Uh, it's worth having that faith, but also having a little bit of cynicism to probably see the other side of people. I think, I think be aware of people. Gotcha. Now, were you always good with people? It seems like you have a very you know, easy to communicate with and connect with personality. Well, I try to. So, I mean, that comes from my upbringing. You know, I have a very close family who are, have always been very supportive and we've, we've, also, we've always been a unit. Uh, I'm Catholic, so, you know, I, I go to church every weekend. I, I believe my faith has, has helped me tremendously through the harder times, but also has taught us to, to treat people in a certain way and have a certain way of dealing with people and always being ethical and always being honest. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I, like I say, I think, I think the way I am now is the way I've always been. And, and despite the problems and the challenges and the way that you can sometimes be let down and, you know, the, the, the things you have to go through on a day-to-day -day basis, I've, I've, I've always had a, a mentality that I would never let it change me or the, or the way that I want to treat other people because, you know, I do believe in karma. I, I also believe in, in being who you are and believing in who you are. And 
I always tried to treat people with the greatest respect because I, I would hope that they would treat me the same way back. Sure. So to that point, let's talk about leadership. Obviously, as you, as you, as you grow into your own company, you begin to take on a sense of leadership with, as you get partners, as you have a board, as you have employees and develop a team, and now your team is effectively international. Yeah. Right? And, um, you know, the leadership, some people can look at it as, well, hey, I'm the CEO, therefore I'm the leader. That, that, that might be a title. Yeah. Leadership is much more than just a title. Uh, what was your experience like as you developed into a leader? Was it a difficult thing for you to take on? Was it easy? Very much so. It was very difficult. Was it? Why, I, I, why? I would say it was arguably my, my, my biggest weakness in the, in the early days because, you know, I, I, I probably took too much on myself rather than delegating it and, and expecting others to be as committed and working hard as, as, as what I could be. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's something which I've had to really develop and learn, and that's where my, my business partners helped me specifically. You know, trust and development of people is key. And in the early days, that's something which I really, really struggled with. So you took more of the load onto your plate. Yeah. You figured I'll do most of it. Is it because you didn't trust, let's say, your partners or your team, your employees, or was it that you felt you could do it better? It wasn't that I felt that I would do it better. I just think, you know, in the, in the earliest days, there had to be an exceptional amount of commitment. <clears throat> and, and people who aren't owners or founders or, or, or financially invested in that regard can't always put that level of commitment. You know, one thing I, I will say is that, and I would, something I would probably say to, to young Rob as well, is be aware of the sacrifice that you're going to have to make. Mm. You know, I, I've made tremendous personal sacrifices trying to, to build my business and, and trying to make it succeed. You know, we, we're not a huge company. We punch very much above our weight. Uh, but that's down to obviously the sacrifices and the hard work that's been made to, to try and establish that and get us there. Sure, good for you, good for you. So speaking of those sacrifices, you and I talked about one sacrifice that you made um, while running your, your event in Las Vegas. Um, Maybe if you could share that, because I don't think people realize the magnitude of sacrifice we have to make. But when your team member, in this case your wife, was is on board with it, yeah, it really wasn't so bad. Well, it it wasn't so bad from her point of view. It, like the date of last year's award show was my wife's fortieth birthday. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it was a milestone birthday, and 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 people quite often celebrated in very special and specific ways. But. I'd been away for the days prior and the days after, and you know I don't think we've ever done anything special and specific to to, to do that. But I mean that's it, it, it's somewhat inconsequential because again it, it, it's just a birthday, and you know she is so supportive of me sure. uh, that we're, we're doing it for the greater good, which is the provision for our families, is the development of a of a better life, and also the the fact that you know we have people that count on me and therefore count on her. To be able to make this a success, yeah. Uh, but you know, the travel and the time away from home is, is without doubt a sacrifice, especially if you're a family man. Right. And uh, I greatly respect anybody who takes huge steps to to, to leave home, to, to leave the wife and kids, to to put themselves in that position where they're, they're out of the yeah. the comfort to, to succeed. 
That's, that's a very important message I want our audience to get because we have two very different audiences. We have those who are already building their empire, they're already on their way, seven figures, eight figure, nine figure businesses. And then we have those that are kind of young and they're, 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 they're in the dreamer stage, they're in the idea stage, they're in the launch phase. And it's, I always like to bring out, because it's so easy on social media, Rob, to see the success side of it. Gosh, you know, look at how many franchises we have. We have 800 locations worldwide and, you know, the lifestyle and I've got my private gym and we've got this building, but there's also the sacrifices, almost like the, the iceberg, that's so much bigger underwater For than sure. the tip that we see. Um, and one thing I want to message to everybody really watching and listening to this is that your key partner who chose you and that you chose her yeah. or him for that matter, that person must be on board with the plan, yes. with the greater good. Yeah. If they're not, I mean, it is an uphill battle, isn't it? Like my wife is my business partner here. Yeah. And if she was not on board with the plan of my travel schedule, my my schedule, my speaking schedule, my I have to work till 1 a.m. schedule. Yeah. And I'm not going to bed yet schedule. This would not all work out. Do you feel the same way? Without a shadow of a doubt. And and again, it comes back to people. Yeah, you know, does, it? It, it's that support network, you know, and, and to use your phrase, Bedros, about pivot, you know, when when I first got married to my wife, you know, I don't believe my travel schedule was as hectic as it was what it is now. And obviously we have three kids now and we didn't back then, you know, it was, it was easier to do these sort of things when you had as lesser responsibilities. But when those pivots happen, you, you've got to evolve and you've got to move with it as well, you know? So yeah. she, she has her own pivots as well as the business. So. Well said, well said. And, and we were talking about uh, a phrase used in boxing, which was what? Move or die. Move or die, right? I don't, I don't know who said it. It yeah. might have been off a movie or something right, like right. that, but it, 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 it's relevant, I think. It's so relevant to entrepreneurship. It's yeah. so relevant to life. If, if you know, Everything evolves, technology evolves, how people's buying behavior evolves. There used to be a time, I remember, you know, when I would go, if I'd want to go buy a new car, you, you walk onto the dealership and you never know what the whole, what they paid for it. They, they pull out their list prices, but you don't know if those are true. Yeah. Today, you can do your research online. There's cars.com, edmunds.com, and literally exactly figure out what their cost is and how much they've marked up the car. Like buyers and their sophistication and their buying habits have changed and we have to evolve with that. And if we don't, we perish. It really is move or die. Yeah, you do, but... I also don't think that, that, that people have evolved. I think, I think people are the same. I think their mentalities are the same. Mm -hmm. Their needs are the same. Their desires are the same. It's just the way that they are met and, and how you can communicate with them or deal with them, which are different. Yeah. Uh, but communication is still one facet of it. And, and arguably, it, it, it's somewhat of a, a minor one because when we're talking about business or marketing or everything else, you know. I think what gets missed a lot nowadays is, is, is one, the diagnosis, two, is, is the strategy, and then comes the tactics after that, of which communication only takes actually 25% a, a of that, mm -hmm. that last phase. But you mentioned social media, you mentioned how people can put out there how successful it is, there's a, a low cost of entry to be able to display that message as well. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's risky. I, I think there's a lot of bluff and bravado and, and, and less substance to what people might think. So, you know, there's, sure. you know, those two elements of the campaign have to be, 
highly thought about rather than just the communication yeah. side. Well, let's, let's, let's talk about that and in fact finish off with that for a moment. I come from the direct response world and it was over the last, Rob, I have to be honest, it was probably over the last six years that I began to embrace branding. Yeah. Because in the direct response world, it's really about for every dollar I put out, I want to make sure I get a dollar back. I'm going to run campaigns where I can track and measure the return on investment. And branding, as we launched our brand, our franchise Fit Body Bootcamp, it's like, gosh, okay, there's something that I might need to not just think direct response. In addition to direct response, I might need to focus on brand. And all of a sudden, I found myself learning something brand new. Um, and as we were talking again in the green room, it's uh, branding is kind of what you're all about or what you heavily understand. Well, I, it's what I believe in as well. You know, I, I think branding is, is ever more important. You know, sure, I, I, and I agree with you. Tell, explain to us why, and maybe you can give us an example like you gave me in the green room there. Because I think, you know, a, a lot of marketing that, that, that happens nowadays is basically just done by people with communication skill sets. Uh, I don't think there's as many campaigns, which what there should be, you know, that means, you know, I don't think there's enough strategy that's put into the things that's being done, which essentially is, is a lack of diagnosis because, you know, I want to say that, you know, the, 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 the media world as it's perceived now is very much one where you're basically just speaking to a lot of people in whichever form you want to do it. And that, that element that you mentioned about wanting to invest a dollar to see that return straight away, although I'm not saying it, it's wrong, I, I just think it, it's short-termism. I believe in, in, in short-term and long-term brand and business growth because I think it's the only way to actually see growth and develop sales because churn's inevitable, competition's inevitable. Uh, you know, you're always going to have somebody that's wanting what you've got. And if you're thinking on a short-term perspective all the time, you, you lose the opportunity to not only build your brand, but also to create risk. You know, if, if it's short-term thinking constantly, as I say, when this churn hits, whatever new developments and whatever new investments or things that you do to actually generate more revenue, it, it, it's just going to be backfill. If, if, if you can acquire that base sale, that base audience, look after it, nurture it, protect it, whilst doing obviously the long-term stuff as well, you're going to see growth. And, and that's just something that I always put into the, the feelings that I have, not only with my own business, but the things that we, we do for our clients as well. Sure, sure. So, so where branding is concerned, yeah, the example you, you gave me was if uh, someone goes on Google and does a, does a search for whey protein. Well, yeah, if, if you talk about the sports nutrition marketplace, yeah. not just that one, other marketplaces where there's fragmentation and so much choice that, you know, there's so much white noise out there because everybody's doing the exact same thing. And obviously, there's power to search, tremendous power to search. But I just think that if people were searching for something specific, i.e. something that they trusted, something that they were looking for specifically, as opposed mm -hmm. to putting in generic terms, that it could be a lot more effective and a lot yeah. more powerful. And that obviously comes from trust, a desire to purchase, which comes from branding. Sure. And, and really branding is like, like the example you used in that term was personal branding, that if I created a protein line, let's say uh, a protein line where I said, let's say it's grass fed, grass finished uh, whey and uh, no antibiotics and, and no GMO and et cetera. And I keep talking about it on social media because I've branded myself. Now, if someone searches whey protein on Google, they're probably going to find a brand that has been years ahead of me in optimizing on the search engines 
and they're going to rank higher than me. But if they search Bedros's protein powder, right, or Bedros's protein or whey protein with my name because they believe in my brand, that's the category of one that's going to pop up. For sure, but obviously the branding might not just come from obviously the, the, the amount of money that you invest in on a long-term perspective. It might come from, as I mentioned before, the strategy, which I think there's a lack in in today's marketplace. Yeah, yeah. If, if your strategy involves what your brand proposition is, uh, what you stand for, uh, what service you actually provide, and, and build it on that basis as well. In an in a, in a integrated synergistic campaign, it's going to have far more effect than if you're just communicating with people constantly saying, buy Bedros's protein. Sure. So, you know, I, I think... Sure. Can you give me an example of, a, of maybe a, a campaign that you guys have done that had a really strong strategy that you can explain clearly to us? Well, we, we've, we've done one recently for a, a sportsbook client. Uh, we represent a client called Five Dimes. Uh, they have obviously a plethora of different sports which, which people uh, can bet online with. Uh, we've worked with them for numerous years and there's been various different parts of, of, of marketing and, and work that we've done for them. But the last two years we've, we've worked together on a specific strategy which was a campaign based off trying to educate people, one, on the sport, uh, two, on how much more fun you can have watching the sport with your friends or being in an environment whereby if you had a little bit of knowledge about the betting side of things you can incorporate that into the fun and enjoyment and uh, we've developed that over a, a dozen different sports which obviously the, the key sports to represent sure we've got uh, expert insight into the content which obviously not only educates people but paints a, a, a picture of uh, the fun that can be achieved by creating that environment mm. And environments are so important because I think that's what marketing's about. I think marketing is creating an environment where a sale can be made. Oh, so I like that. marketing is creating an environment where a sale can be made. Yeah. So we've we've created this environment across different integrated platforms. Obviously, we've used our magazines, we've used our social, we've used our email databases, we've used our digital reach, but we've also developed a series of eBooks. We've developed an app, which obviously the eBook can go on. And we've uh, built sales funnels, which can not only create the awareness within our print media, which you know, our print media has got data to show the key sports, which our audience are into and like, but we've extrapolated that and, and amplified that across all the other different forms of media on this same campaign message of enjoy the sport, learn about the sport and have even more fun by placing a bet with your friends while you're there. Brilliant. That was actually a very good example. So. <clears throat> if our if our audience wants to find you, connect with you, reach out to you, what's the best way for our audience to reach you? Uh, would probably be through my LinkedIn page. Okay. Uh, obviously, just to search Rob Hewitt, I2 Media Group. Yeah. Great. Well, Rob, thank you so much for spending time on the show with us. Great. Thank you. Appreciate Bedros. all the knowledge and wisdom that you shared. Guys and gals, thank you so much for listening to this episode, watching this episode on YouTube. And as always, if you enjoy this episode, remember, give us a five-star review on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the different platforms. We would greatly appreciate it. And above all, take a screenshot and share it on social media. Thank you so much. Take care.